Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, it's going to be an interesting day. Rick Wartzman and Don Siegelman are going to join us later on in the program. I wanted to start, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff in the news, but it all kind of echoes around this same theme. And that theme, arguably, is, is Donald Trump up to the presidency? I mean, as... As a country, I was going to say setting aside aside party, but I, you know, I don't think that, you know, Republicans or Democrats, frankly, are going to be willing to do that. But, but is is Donald Trump so temperamentally unfit to be president that there should be some sort of a campaign to encourage Mike Pence and his cabinet to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment? Or will this simply take care of itself with the impeachment hearings? It's, it's increasingly looking like, at the very least, the Trump organization, you know, with all these, uh, or Paul Manafort or both, with all of these Trump properties that were bought for millions and millions of dollars with cash, uh, that's very often, not always, and, and not necessarily in this case, but very often the sign of a money laundering operation. And, you know, real estate deals have gotten basically as a result of lobbying here in Washington, D.C., giving money to members of Congress. Uh, real estate developers like Donald Trump not only enjoy mind-boggling tax benefits, I mean, you know, 20 years without paying anything except the minimum income tax, uh, or the alternative minimum tax, the ATM, uh, or AM, yeah, AMT. But in addition to that, uh, there's, there's all these, uh, you, do, you know, like if you, if you put $10 million into a bank account, you would have to disclose it to the IRS. If you put $10 million into a piece of property, you don't. And, and the developer doesn't have to. And that's, uh, uh, or at least that's my understanding of the law. And, you know, this is something that has worked tremendously to his benefit. So, you know, if it turns out the, the Trump organization has been engaged in money laundering, 
or something else, you know, collusion with Russia to, to flip an election, whatever it may be. I mean, I, it's, it's all these things are, uh, you know, being investigated. And what could come out of, you know, God only knows. But whether it's the impeachment process or whether it's the 25th Amendment, I don't know of any other mechanism to remove him from office. But I think the entire world is starting to look at us and go, you know, your president is making us nervous. Your president is making us less safe. Your president, they are saying to us, is a fool and, and making America a laughingstock on the world stage. Do something, they're saying. So what do we do? I mean, you know, do we stop? You can't, you can't call the cat. You know, you can call Congress, 202-224-3121, and say, hey, it's, in time, it's time to impeach uh, Trump. But he hasn't. I mean, the, the impeachment, yes, the impeachment process is a political process. But there has to be some legal basis to it. In the Constitution, it requires high crimes or misdemeanors. You can't just impeach somebody because you think they're stupid or they have a short attention span or they, they require two briefings a day where all of the briefing papers are pictures of them, you know, with smiling faces and things. Um, it's, you know, which is actually a thing, apparently. Trump gets these, you know, uh, Obama used to get them every day. You know, it'd be a collection of newspaper reports about what's going on in the world. And, and the, the whole idea was to give him a profile, a cross-section. In fact, I, I recall back when Lamar and I were working on John Kennedy, on the book about the Kennedy assassination, Jack Kennedy used to get a daily briefing about what was in the newspapers. And it would be, you know, okay, uh, here's the, you know, an attack on unions going on. And here, you know, the, the Soviet Union said so-and-so. And, -so, and uh, the Treasury Secretary thinks this and that, and here's what's happening in the market, you know, in the in the stock markets, and here's what's happening in the labor markets, and I, you know, it'd just be a kind of a roundup of the day's news, not classified, just also, you know, so so the president has an understanding of what the American people are understanding, and I'm assuming it started long before Jack Kennedy. In fact, I'd be surprised if it didn't start with the FDR administration. FDR is a very media savvy president. And so all the way from way back when until Barack Obama, the president once a day would get a folder filled with copies or it used to be tear sheets during the Kennedy administration. They'd actually just tear the pages out of the newspaper. And here would be, you know, copiers were much more expensive to make. It was much more difficult and expensive to make copies back then. But, you know, here's here are the stories of the day. But Trump has changed that to every day he has to have two folders delivered to him, at least according to the news reports we're reading, and they have to be all about him. Pictures of, you know, literally screenshots from TV shows with uh, his smiling face or a Chiron, you know, the lower third, the words on the lower third of the screen that says something nice about him. It's all, you know, any articles, you know, Donald Trump is a genius, that kind of headline, that'll make it into his, into his uh, daily briefing, as it were. So people are looking at us going, this is wrong. Meanwhile, North Korea, you know, Donald Trump, his, his fire and fury thing, North Korea says, yeah, this is a load of nonsense. They know a bluff when they see one. They've, they've been bluffing for, for what, 60 years? They understand bluff. 
The problem is the United States should never bluff. Teddy Roosevelt articulated this in, in, in 1900, you know, uh, walk softly and carry a big stick. When the United States bluffs, it diminishes our credibility. It diminishes our power in the world. If you're, if you're going to take somebody out, take them out. But if you're not going to take them out, don't threaten to. It just makes you look weak. Very strange. And then on top of that, after threatening to take out North Korea, Donald Trump goes on to say, you know, my first order as president was to renovate and modernize our nuclear arsenal. It's now stronger and more powerful than ever before. Uh, no, actually, that was Obama. President Obama, you know, put forward the order to, to uh, upgrade, and by upgrade, I mean modernize our nuclear forces. And Congress, you know, allocated billions of dollars to do this. To the best of my knowledge, Trump has done no executive orders or other orders to that effect. I think he's just claiming credit for something that Obama did. But as a consequence of, the, of these kind of fundamentally stupid statements that we now know, literally Trump pulled this out of his backside. He didn't, he didn't consult with anybody. And he's surrounding himself with generals who actually understand how the world works. And he clearly doesn't. That, oh, yeah, you know, we should have a preventative war. What did Sarah Sanders say? The words were his own. Right. The tone and strength of the message was discussed beforehand. Yes, we're going to say something firm. Well, you, you don't give Donald Trump generalities like, hey, be firm. Because he thinks be firm means, I'm going to threaten to burn your house down. No, be firm is, you know, don't do that or there will be consequences and you will not like the consequences. It's, uh, it's. So anyway, we've got that bizarre stuff going on in Cuba. American diplomats losing their hearing. Nobody knows why. The FBI raided Paul Manafort's home. This is now coming out. Uh, it turns out it was, this is on July 26th. This was about two weeks ago. And uh, this was a no-knock warrant. I mean, they, they kicked down the door. Pretty amazing. Documents are said to include notes Manafort took while attending a meeting with Don Trump Jr. and a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower in June of 2016. You know, quack, quack, quack. So, and there's a 36-foot inflatable chicken outside the White House. Did you see this yesterday? This chicken has been following Donald Trump around, you know, at events saying, are you chicken, are you chicken to, to show us your tax returns? Why are you chicken to turn? You know, it's a chicken with Trump hair. It's pretty amazing. You haven't seen this. And now Donald Trump is getting into a, uh, a war with Mitch McConnell, a guy that he's going to need if there's an impeachment trial. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. So what do we do about this? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Impeachment, 25th Amendment. Is there something I'm missing? You know, obviously, I don't want anything violent or inappropriate, but, you know, what are the what what other mechanisms do we have? Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, you know, looking at this, all this stuff in the in the bigger view, you know, the, the Middle East would not. And, and, and I think it's important for us every now and then to just step back and look at at least, you know, the last five, six decades. And say, what have we done that we can learn from? 
what have we done smart? What have we done stupid that we can learn from? And we know that in 1979, I believe it was, Maggie Thatcher was wildly unpopular. Actually, I'm not sure of the year of the Falkland War, but uh, I should drop into our chat room. Sue probably knows it right off the top of her head. Uh, but in any case, uh, back in the day, Maggie Thatcher was insanely unpopular. She was busting the unions. She was 19, oh, 1982. Thank you, Troy. Um, she was doing all this stuff. And, uh, you know, the Argentinians, uh, one story of history is that they started it and others that the British started it, whoever started it. Uh, Maggie Thatcher decided to have a little war over the Falkland Islands. And the little war just lasted a little while, and the British won. Yeah, April 2nd, 1982. Thank you, Sue. And uh, that little war was, like, incredible for her popularity. It really helped out. And, you know, prior to that, up until that point, the conventional wisdom was don't go starting any wars, right? Uh, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson tried that in Vietnam. It did not work out well. Don't do it again. That was kind of worldwide conventional wisdom, or at least in the Western world. And then Maggie Thatcher had her little war in Argentina, and it was like, oh, wow. That, 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 that worked. You know, and, and, you know, double bonus, the Argentinians started it, right? It, but, you know, it's, so Maggie Thatcher really looked like a hero, right? You're not going to step on us. And so Reagan looked at that and said, oh, wow, this is cool. And he said, let's take out Grenada, right? It's a socialist country. We don't, want, we don't want those thinking socialists in the Western Hemisphere. And we're not, you know, we can't go to war with Cuba, but Grenada, hey, you know, Maurice Bishop is running the country. He's an avowed socialist. Let's do it. And so we attacked Grenada. Now, weirdly enough, Grenada was one of three nations in the world that North Korea had, uh, you know, mutual agreements with. Mostly technology transfer stuff. But they were doing business together, North Korea and Grenada. Hey, you know, communists stick together. So when Reagan attacked Grenada, that was the point at which North Korea started getting really nervous. My God, if he could take out Grenada, he could take out us. And so they started planning for, well, I mean, they'd already been planning. You know, they didn't start getting nervous then. They'd fought a war against us that just leveled Pyongyang, the capital city of North Korea. There was literally one building left standing. Millions of people died in that war. It was a horrific war. So Reagan has his little war in Grenada, and Bush, Bush Sr. goes, hey, that's kind of cool. You got popular as a result of that. And so did Maggie Thatcher. I guess, you know, the post-Vietnam rules have changed. So I'm going to have a little war with Saddam Hussein. And so, you know, he had his, his person, April Gillespie, tell Saddam Hussein, yeah, you know, if you want to take Kuwait, that's fine, no problem. And then as soon as Saddam Hussein took Kuwait, because they were slant drilling into his oil wells and stealing his oil, as soon as he took Kuwait, boom. We invaded and, you know, kicked his butt, threw him back to, ba to Baghdad. But the war only lasted a couple of days. It was a hundred hour war. So it didn't quite get Bush the popularity he needed to get reelected, but it gave him a 10, 20, 30 point boost in the, in the I mean, I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but it was huge. Suddenly George Herbert Walker Bush, everybody thought he was a wimp. Oh no, he's a war president. So his son says, you know, I got to have some wars too. And, and, you know, if I'm going to have a war, 
it's going to be, and this is what he told his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz, back in 1999, before he ran for president. He said, you know, if I'm going to have a war, it's going to last long enough that it's a real war. You know, my daddy just wasted all that political capital. I'm not going to waste that political capital. And I'm going to use that political capital to privatize Social Security, which had been his lifelong dream ever since he ran for Congress in 1978 in Texas. Unsuccessfully, he lost on the single issue of privatizing Social Security. It's the Republicans' dream. So, you know, here's this little war doctrine. It doesn't work anymore. If George W. Bush had not tried to have his little war in Iraq, in first in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, we would not have this mess all over the Middle East. And arguably, this all started. You know what got bin Laden started? Was Bush Sr., Daddy Bush, creating for the very first time a U.S. Air Force base in Saudi Arabia. That was the main complaint of bin Laden against us that led to 9-11. So Bush Sr.'s little war brought us 9-11. 9-11 gave Bush Jr. an opportunity for a couple of little wars. And now Donald Trump thinks he can have a little war with North Korea. Every single one of these Republican wars is getting more stupid. Hey, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com Hartman. That's ZipRecruiter.com Hartman. One more time, you can try it for free right now. You can post your jobs on ZipRecruiter Zipper, for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Hartman. All the important stories we cover and the issues we care about are at HartmanReport.com. Members of our community can comment and join the conversation. One last thing, just to put a punctuation point at the end of this rant. We don't have an ambassador to South Korea. We, we, the State Department is filled with unfilled posts. We don't, we don't have, this is the, 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 the naked incompetence of the Trump administration, or, or I'm not even sure partisanship is the word, factionalism maybe, that Donald Trump doesn't want somebody being serving in his administration unless they have basically you know, gone on national television and said that they want to kiss, kiss his butt and lay down in, on, in front of a bus on the, in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue and get run over just to help him out. Right. I mean, you know, you've, you just have to you have to show loyalty and fealty and 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 blind love for this man like Scaramucci. Even the, and that didn't even help Scaramucci from getting fired. Right. It, it all happened within one Scaramucci, you know, 10 days. Bang. It's gone. So, uh, you know, it's it, you got to seriously suck up to this guy if you want a job in his administration, or at least a job that's going to last more than a few months. And, you know, there's a lot of, not a lot of diplomats who do that kind of thing. 
So so he's doing what? Uh, appointing Newt Gingrich's third wife to be the ambassador to the Vatican, which doesn't recognize marriage after the second and you know after the first marriage. Um, his third wife—it's <laughs> I mean, just bizarre. So, anyhow, the 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 net net of all this is that the one thing that probably is our greatest hope for not engaging in World War III, for not stepping into a nuclear holocaust. The greatest hope is diplomacy. And Rex Tillerson wants to cut the, the budget of the State Department by between a quarter and a third. He's, you know, they have all these senior positions that are not filled. It's like, you know, the Republicans uh, before Benghazi happened voting down the State Department's request for increased security for, for facilities like Benghazi. The Republicans vote down the extra security, and then when something happens, they start screaming about it. Well, you know, the Republicans could be, you know, leading us into a nuclear war with, with North Korea, and there might not be any afterwards. So anyway, your thoughts on all this, Andy in Petaluma, California. Hey, Andy, what's on your mind? Yeah, so when Trump the traitor starts his distraction war, I think one simple thing we can all do is turn off the TV. Because CNN and MSNBC, I feel, will immediately start banging the war drum. Not only will they do that, but they'll also start attacking anybody who speaks out against the war. So we shouldn't reward them with ratings. And also, that type of coverage could facilitate a second term for Trump, as I believe it sort of did with Bush. I agree. I agree on all points. Uh, the, the one problem is, uh, you know, it, it, people slow down for fistfights and car wrecks. You know, uh, people will... People will, you know, if, if, if people see naked bodies, they look at them. There's a reason why advertising agencies put scantily clad women in, in ads. It, it draws the eye. And, and disaster porn, war porn, is, is, you know, very compelling stuff. So, Andy, we can talk all day about don't watch the damn networks when they go on their war terror like they did in 2002 and 2003 with Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we can we can ask for that, but uh, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, it's it's a start. It's a start. But, you know, yeah. Andy, thank you for the call. Kyle you, in Enid, Oklahoma, you have any suggestions? Well, I had a different theory that has been not been talked about. Okay. Um, we all agree that uh, uh, Russia is a petro state. Uh, Rex Tillerson obviously owns Lots of Exxon stock. Tillerson's Massive. a petro-oligarch, let's call him. Yeah. Uh, and Donald Trump, I think most of us agree, is in debt to the Russians in some way, shape, or form. I think if we look at the three of them have the three arguably most powerful men in the world have one thing in common. They want the price of oil to go up dramatically. Right. Rex Tillerson, I was a commodity broker for 17 years. Rex Tillerson is very adept at getting in and causing conflicts, problems are in the Strait of Hormuz, getting oil to spike. Uh, they need one more shot up. Mm. And if they can and a war would do that. War, this is why I think that Korea was a sideshow that he wasn't expecting and doesn't want. That's why I think they won't mess with him if they can help it unless we're attacked. They want to start a fight in the Strait of Hormuz, close it down, Get a spike in the price of oil. If 
can you imagine the value to Putin if oil spiked 25 to 50 dollars in a month? Well, it wouldn't just be Putin. It would be Venezuela. It would be all the countries in the Middle East. It would be Russia. It would be the big oil companies. I mean, everybody who sells oil benefits from that. Um, Are you, uh, you know, what are you thinking? Something like a terrorist incident happening in in Malaysia or something? No, no, no. Just think what he's already done. He was in Saudi Arabia. Well, who's the he you're talking about? Trump? uh, uh, Trump was in Saudi Arabia. Arabia bad-mouthing Iran, doing everything he could to what right. appeared to be start problems. He's, he's wanting to arm Saudi Arabia further. Uh, those three individuals have a massive thing in common, and that's the price of oil. Right. Putin would wipe out whatever Trump owed him instantly. If you could, a, a $40 jump or 30 or 25 jump would make Putin, who knows what, a trillion dollars? Well, we don't we don't know, and and what we well, do know about Trump and his debt is that most of it is to the is to the is to Deutsche Bank, the German bank. Although you know it, it makes perfect sense to me that he owes a bunch of money to a bunch of of oligarchs, probably Russian oligarchs. But you know, I it, just a theory. Just no, a theory. I you know I get it, and this is we're all this is all speculation. But but the 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 net net bottom line here, Kyle, of what you're suggesting is that oil is that war pretty much anywhere, a Korean war would be really, really bad. Um, you know, it wouldn't, the cost-benefit ratio would not be worth it. But a smaller war someplace that would spike the price of oil. Close, would, the, close the Strait of Hormuz. Do it. Just well, that, there, that arguably, you know, the problem is China or North Korea is not getting their oil through, through water-based, you know, they're not getting it through the Straits of Hormuz. Japan is. Well, they're getting their oil over the land from, from China. So forget Korea. So if you want to if you want to spike the price of oil, what you do is you provoke a war with Qatar. I would say, you know, Saudi Arabia right now is or at least a PAC that's funded by the Saudis is running ads here in Washington, D.C., basically calling on the United States to uh, to sever ties with Qatar, you know, calling Qatar a uh, sponsor, state sponsor terrorism, et cetera. What I believe they're really upset about and not just the Saudis, the Israelis are also uh, you know, getting in on this. And you've got a right-wing government in Israel with Netanyahu. You've got a right-wing government in Saudi Arabia with King Salman. And I, I think that what they're both upset about is Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is telling what's going on in the in Gaza and the West Bank, and, and which is, you know, not making Israel happy. And they're telling what's going on in Yemen right now with this god-awful genocidal war that the, that the Saudis are waging with, with U.S. weaponry, um, you know, against the, the Houthis in, in, in Yemen. And uh, so if they could take and, and you know, uh, Qatar doesn't have oil, but they've got natural gas, massive amounts of natural gas. And all these markets are interlinked. And so if they could take down Qatar somehow, uh, you know, the UAE is big on this. Now, the UAE is like one of the major lobbyers right now in, you know, in terms of dollars coming into the United States. But it's just it's it, there's a lot of ways that this could happen. Kyle, I don't I don't discount anything you're saying. Thank you for the call. David in uh, Miami Beach. Hey, David, what's up? Yes, sir. North Miami Beach. Thanks for being on Progressive Voices. My pleasure. And, uh, yes. So uh, I think we're going about this the wrong way. We give him an out. He wants to take credit for the trillion dollars to fix the missiles. All he has to do is audit the Pentagon. Rumsfeld knew there was a trillion missing. Yeah. Uh, he wants to cut taxes on the rich. He could do that without hurting his actual voters by they cut the income tax of 35%, but corporations or people make sure they get 
they have to pay the thirty five percent to match. Right. He he could be he could be Nixon reaching across the spectrum. Give him a way out like any other criminal. Well, I, I have a feeling Mike Pence is going to do that. And, uh, you know, go to officialmikepence.com. You'll see what the plans are. But uh, all, all very good points, David. It's, uh, you know, uh, maybe it, it's kind of a, a variation on the old give him enough rope, you know. Um, but uh, politically speaking, David, thank you for the call. I, where this is going, the reason why it's so hard to predict, and this is the problem, is that Trump has no philosophical core. There's no there there. He just says whatever he thinks is going to get him the most love over the next hour. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Which, by the way, is no way to run a country or a presidency. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Quite the day. Quite the day. So where, where is Donald Trump taking us? This uh, Dana Milbank has a piece in today's Washington Post titled The Trump Cleanup Patrol Just Had Its Biggest Job Yet. Just, you know, imagine those guys who walk around behind the elephants in the circus. Um, this is this is basically, you know, he's got three generals now walking around with the with with the brooms and whatnot. It's it's getting pretty grim. Um, in the meantime, I'm I'm very pleased to have on the air, have on the on the line with us, Governor Don Siegelman, the uh, former governor of Alabama, 1999-2003. His story is profiled in the new documentary by Steve Wimberly, Atticus versus the Architect, the political assassination of Don Siegelman. Of course, uh, Steve Wimberly was on our show yesterday talking about this. The website free-don.us, and you can tweet him at Don Siegelman, S-I-E-G-E-L-M-A-N. Uh, uh, Governor, welcome. Welcome back to the program. Uh, yes, Tom. You know, the, the last time I was on live uh, on your show, I was uh, the phone call was interrupted and I was taken to solitary confinement for about 60 days. So uh, let's hope Jeff Sessions doesn't have that in store for me after this phone call. Yes, I, I, I was. Um... I don't remember where I was, but Sam Sachs was filling in for me that day, and I'm I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it was uh, it was an innocent phone call. I was calling to encourage uh, your listeners and viewers to uh, get in touch with their members of Congress to try to bring this Safe Justice Act to the floor for a vote. But one of the things that I learned while I was in prison is that the, our criminal justice system has flaws and it needs to be fixed. That's my calling now. I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, once things settle down and once I have uh, a little more freedom to travel, I can uh, get to some members of Congress and make my case and offer some suggestions that will hopefully help balance the scales of justice and, in a sense, reset uh, our moral compass, at least as far as criminal justice is concerned. Yeah. I'm, I'm still concerned, frankly, about the theft of our elections. I mean, this, in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, this all began when you went to bed uh, in November of 2002, as I recall, thinking that you had won the election, had been called by the AP and everything else for governor of Alabama against Bob Riley, the Republican, who was, uh, you know, being supported by Karl Rove. And uh, in the morning, you woke up and uh, you had not won the election. Uh, 
Do you care to speak of that, well, or would you rather? Well, well the, 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 the way the, I, I have to take issue with your phraseology. Actually, I did win the election, and when I woke up, the election had been stolen, um, stolen uh, by with the help of, of two people, one who immediately went to work for Jack Abramoff or, or Jack Abramoff-related company, the Alexandria Group, and the other uh, who was uh, Carl Rove's client and uh, Jeff Sessions's protege, Bill Pryor, who was uh, quickly nominated uh, and had confirmed on a recess. Uh, well, he, was, he took, took the office on a recess appointment because uh, Democrats in, in the Senate refused to confirm him. It's to a federal judgeship, right? Yeah, he's, he is on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, through which all of my, my appeals had to travel. Mm. Um, and after after he was appointed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, Jeff Sessions said, we would have put him on the court earlier, but we needed a Republican governor in, play, in place first. Bill Pryor was the one who sealed the election for, for my opponent by certifying the false ballots, the false uh, election totals in 2002. He illegally certified those uh, two days before state law allows. Um, hmm. So anyway, we are, uh, so my, my, you know, what I, after that, I said, well, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, live to fight again, and I'll run in 2006. And it was after that that uh, Jeff Sessions's retired FBI agents started building a case against me. I, I want to, I think your listeners might be interested in, in noting that in 2003, when political surveys showed that I would win re-election easily in 2006, the state Republican Party chairman, Marty Connors, went to Washington to meet with Jeff Sessions to uh, to understand the parameters under which Jeff Sessions would run for governor against me in 2006. It was it was after that meeting that Jeff Sessions's retired FBI agents uh, who used to work for him when he was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District built the two cases against me, one in 2004, which the federal judge presiding said it was the most unfounded criminal case over which he had presided in his entire 30 years on the bench. And then the other uh, in 2006, uh, of which, uh, which you know, uh, cost me the, the election in 2006 and also cost me 88 months of my life. Yeah. In a, in a federal prison, um, is the 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 weaponization of the criminal justice system is something that we've come to expect from, you know, brutal despotic regimes. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, you know the the, the the communist government of uh, of China or Cambodia or something like that. You know, Vietnam, um, but uh, it's not something that has historically been trained in the United States against politicians, arguably with the exception of against people of color who have political aspirations, particularly, you know, from the 1870s to the 1970s, arguably. Um, sure. But, but uh, can you speak to that, this weaponization of the criminal justice system? Well, it, it, is, it is clear that 
Oh, we just lost Governor Siegelman. Um, hopefully he'll call us right back. Governor, welcome back. Well, I don't know what happened. I, I was giving this most wonderful soliloquy, and uh, you were off the air. I was yeah. off the air. So yeah, suddenly I, you I, vanished. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, you can try it again. We're going to hit a break in about three minutes, and then we can come back from the break, and we can continue this, too. But we're on the air right now, so you can uh, uh, finish your point. We were talking about the weaponization of our uh, ju- of our criminal justice system. Yeah, and I, I was saying that, you know, we, we know that my, my election was stolen. We know that the Department of Justice was used as a political weapon. We know that... Uh, that the Department of Justice has been engaged in a cover-up of its own wrongdoing. We know that the U.S. attorney who led my political prosecution now has has managed to get the documentary banned in the heart of Dixie. And we have a president who's uh, seemingly uh, thumbs his nose at and challenges constitutional restraints on the presidency. And one has to wonder what kind of democracy we are currently living in. And that's why I, 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 I encourage your your listeners and readers and, and uh, followers and viewers to go to free-don.org and sign our petition uh, demanding that the censorship of the documentary of Atticus versus the Architect, the political assassination of Don Sittleman, be shown uh, and that the ban in Montgomery be lifted. Um, now, is this all of Montgomery, Alabama, or is this just the Capri Theater? That's that's just well, it's, it's, it's just the Capri Theater. But that was the theater that uh, Steve Wembley had a contract with to show the documentary, and then they pulled the contract when they realized that the documentary was going to be embarrassing to one of their board members, Laura Canary, who is oh my, uh, of course, featured in the documentary because she engaged in multiple acts of misconduct. Right. But there's no, uh, I mean, this is a private company. There's, there's no way you can compel them to play the movie. Uh, no, no, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, I think it's a 501c4, uh, you know, group that, yeah. uh, independent. So why not get one of the biggest bars in town and, you know, like one of the big sports bars and have all the TVs play the movie, charge admission at the door just as if it was a movie theater, but it's, it's a sports bar. And, you know, it can hold a couple hundred people and, and show the movie that way and, you know, just do it. I think that's a, well, I think that's a great idea. I have nothing to do with the documentary. I don't have any financial interest in it. So that's but I will pass that along to the filmmaker. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think people in Montgomery would probably enjoy a good beer watching this. Uh, this, 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 this I would think so. And, then, you know, if you can if you can find a, you know, a philosophically aligned bar. Uh, we're talking with Don Siegelman. You can stick around for a second, Governor? Oh, sure. Okay, great. Hang on just a second. We just, we just have to hit this little break here. We'll be right back. Uh, uh, Don Siegelman is with us. Welcome back. We're talking with Governor Don Siegelman, the governor of Alabama, 1999 to 2003. His story profiled in the new documentary by Steve Wimberly, Atticus versus the Architect, the Political Assassination of Don Siegelman. Uh, the uh, website free-don.org or free-don.us. You can tweet him at Don Siegelman, S-I-E-G-E-L-M-A-N. Governor, uh, we uh, uh, we lost our phone connection as you were uh, uh, speaking to the issue of the of the of the weaponization of our criminal justice system here in the United States. You want to just recap real quickly what you were saying? Well, I, it's it, it's. It's both unfortunate um, and, of course, wrong. And I think that uh, 
you know, of course, in my story emanates from from Karl Rove at the Department of uh, <clears throat> at the White House and. Uh, in 2001, and uh, after the Kiplinger letter touted me as a possible Democrat who could put the party together to challenge George W. Bush in 2004, that's when uh, you know things started to uh, to rev up. And Carl Rove's uh, best friend and former business partner Billy Canary, his wife was confirmed as U.S. Attorney and. She uh, kicked the federal investigation into high gear. Uh, I was uh, initially brought to trial in 2004, and then again in 2006, uh, while her husband was running my opponent's uh, general election campaign. So, uh, I, you know, at least in my case, I I know and understood where the uh, where the matter was coming from, it was it was coming from Carl Rove and, and Carl Rove's forces in Alabama, who did not want me to be reelected first in 2002 because they knew I was going to enter the primaries, Democratic primaries, and and hopefully have an opportunity to be on the ticket uh, to challenge George W. Bush in 2004. My after I was uh, indicted and 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 acquitted and or the government dismissed the charges in 2004 we uh you know revved up again looking at 2006 and and again it was Jeff Sessions's retired FBI agents it wasn't the FBI that 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 came after me it was it was retired FBI agents working for Carl Rove's client Bill Pryor who built the case uh, against me in 2004 and 2006. So it's, I, there's no question that this was a political hit. It is admitted in this letter by the Department of Justice, the Office of uh, Professional Responsibility, which is still under seal by the Department of Justice. It is the subject of it and other documents that the Department of Justice are refusing to release regarding their misconduct is the subject of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, which is pending in the Northern District of Alabama. This this lawsuit, Tom, is our last legal effort to seek disclosure. What, what we're hoping is that the federal judge will open the flap of the tent and let some of the stench out and some light in to shed light on the government misconduct. This is this is uh, serious stuff. Uh, we we have about three minutes till we hit the uh, bottom of the hour here, Governor. The uh, you know you're obviously working to clear your name, and I I uh, you know, have been loudly supportive of that effort from day one. Uh, and and people need to call their members of Congress at two zero two 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 four thirty one twenty one and and ask for some some uh, uh, light to be brought on this issue. Um, uh, what? What specific and 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 check out this movie, uh, you know, Atticus versus the Architect. But um, beyond that, what can people do in support of what you're doing? A and B. What are your plans going forward? Well, I, th I think at, at the at, at the present time, the best thing that I can ask people to do is to to go online to uh, free-don.org and sign the petition. And secondly. Um, my my plans are to speak out about the flaws in our justice system. Think about this. If President Obama's 
lawyer, the Solicitor General, can argue to the U.S. Supreme Court that United States citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. Think about that. His, Obama's lawyer argues that we don't have a constitutional right not to be framed. If it was that bad under President Obama, what will it be like under Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump? Whoa. So, uh, you know, Wait, I, is it, I, they actually argued in federal court that the that the that there was nothing wrong with the state of Alabama framing you. No, they argued that the, the, uh, the or the federal prosecutor General, framing you. The solicitor general argued to the United States Supreme Court on January the 4th, 2010, that U.S. citizens don't have a constitutional right not to be framed. The, the point I'm making is uh, that they, even at the highest level, there's an umbrella of protection over prosecutors and investigators to get convictions um, by any means necessary. Right. And, 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 and wrong-headed people argue that we not only need to do that, but we need to give these people the longest prison sentences possible. So uh, we've got uh, there are multiple things that uh, multiple issues that need to be attacked and corrected and modified to balance the scales of justice. That's what I hope to do in the coming years. And uh, so uh, right now, go to my website, free-don.org, sign the petition, and and uh, you know I'll uh, when things loosen up and I'm able to travel, I'm going to be in D.C. arguing with members of Congress to to make some changes in our justice system. Well, that's great. The seat right next to me here is is uh, got your name on it, Governor. It's uh, you know I hope you can come and visit us and, and be live and on the air with us. And I look forward to future conversations. I'd like to know more about your criminal justice reform ideas and your experiences in prison. I hope that you will come back. I will. Okay, great. Governor Don Siegelman. Governor, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. Great Bye-bye. talking with you. Great talking. So glad that you are out. It is wonderful. Hey, Tom Hartman here with the Tom Hartman Program. You know I'm serious about my health, and so I'm doing something for it. You've heard me talking about Super Beets. I'm drinking Super Beets, a circulation superfood powder that helps support my heart and healthy blood pressure, too. I have amazing energy, amazing stamina as well. The New York Times calls beets fitness in a glass. With Super Beets, I get all the benefits without the bad taste or added sugar. Mix it in water or a smoothie for a jitter-free energy boost. You'll love the taste of Super Beets and feel results in as little as 20 minutes guaranteed of your money back. Try the original berry or the black cherry flavor. They're both delicious. If you haven't tried it yet, now is the time. Only for the summer, you can try Super Beats for only $5.95. Here's how. Call now and get a free box of Super Beats with 10 packets to try and feel the results, plus two free indicator strips for monitoring your nitric oxide levels before and after taking Super Beats. It's just $5.95. You'll love the results, guaranteed. More energy, more stamina, support healthy circulation. What are you waiting for? Call 800-568-9889. That's 800-568-9889. Or go to tomsbeats.com. That's tomsbeats.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Oh, this is interesting. Isaiah 66. This is the King James Version. Uh, N. Raleigh Liberal posting over at Democratic Underground. Um, Quoting another DU or Grasswire, Isaiah 66, 15 through 7, King James Version. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. 
I was wondering where they came from. I mean, fury is not a word that you would expect, right? It's, you know, fire and fury. I mean, it's, I remember listening to that and thinking, you know, I, I, this is a very, very, it's an anachronistic phrase. It's not, it's not, you know, common contemporary usage. Um, very, very strange stuff. Very strange stuff. Uh, anyhow, uh, William in Cape Coral, Florida. Hey, William, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the situation with Trump and North Korea. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to get some insight from you, because uh, I'm, I'm younger, 25, and I kind of recently got into politics because of Bernie. been trying to catch up. But the question is, I suppose, with how Trump is, and the advisors around him, is it a mixture of he's literally just that stupid that he doesn't do his research on the North Korean people? Or is there some type of benefit he'll get out with going to war with North Korea that maybe I'm not aware of? Yeah, I don't think there's any benefit to anybody. Uh, there's a few defense contractors who probably think they can make some money on it. But in the end, pretty much everybody always loses in war. Uh, uh, you know, when we were kids, uh, William, uh, most of us had the experience of reading stories, uh, mostly fairy tales. You know, the, the, the emperor who has no clothes, you know, the king who's like a total doofus, and he's taken in by the guys who say, oh, yeah, this invisible clothing is like the, you know, you know only, the, only the noble can see it, you know, and, oh, yes, I can see that. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, there were a bunch of them. I mean, the Humpty Dumpty story was, was about an old king. Um, this idea of the autocrat, the king, who, who really is incompetent, is one that has, uh, you know, a thread that has, has flown through Western civilization um, uh, for millennia. And I think that that's exactly where we are, that, that we've, we've finally elected an idiot as president of the United States. And I, I, I don't mean that clinically. Uh, idiot used to be a term that referred to a particular band of IQ. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that Trump has a, you know, a normal IQ, uh, but, uh, you know, he's severely broken, you know, severely damaged in a whole bunch of regards. In this. So I, you know, I think that that's, that's the Occam's razor. You know, the easiest answer is that William, thanks for the call. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. A uh, number of news stories that I just, I wanted to share with you today. Some of the stuff that's going on in the world. Um, that we will get to in just a moment. But first, uh, Rick Wartzman is on the line with us. He is the author of a brilliant new book, The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. He's the director of the K.H. Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute, uh, Claremont Graduate University. He's a contributor to Fortune Magazine. Uh, you can tweet him at rwartzman, W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, and uh, the website is drucker.institute. Um, Rick, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us the premise of your book, The End of Loyalty. So the premise is, uh, this is a narrative history, and it looks at this long arc over about 70, 75 years from the end of World War II until today. And it looks at what's happened to uh, what I describe as the social contract between employer and employee in America. And I define that as job security, pay, uh, pensions, retirement security, and, and health care benefits. And uh, through the lens of four big companies, 
General Motors, General Electric, Coca-Cola, and Kodak, I trace the rise of the social contract, and then it's unraveling. So the, the, this was a contract that was not codified at law beyond, you know, the Wagner Act and things like, you know, that, that facilitated it, essentially. You know, the, the National right. Labor Relations Act that, that allowed for unionization and protection of unionization. But beyond that, it was, this was largely something that was put together as a deal between business and workers in the years immediately, particularly in the years immediately following World War II. Um, was that because of the concern that soldiers coming back home would not find employment and that could lead to civil unrest? Or was that because the employers were trying to make that transition back from a wartime economy? You know, the nylon manufacturers have been shifted to making parachutes and the car manufacturers were making tanks and airplanes. Um, you know, was it, you know, what, what, what was driving those decisions? So there was a real mix of impulses. Um, certainly, uh, one thing that you said was absolutely motivating the leaders of the four companies that I talked about and, and others who were together actually instrumental in a, the founding of an organization called the Committee for Economic Development. And this is where my book begins in late 1942 um, with the founding of the CED. It's still around, by the way, now part of the conference board, but it was a, a leading business organization of its time. And uh, so, yes, a real mix of, of things going on. One was, as you say, there was fear that uh, if there weren't good jobs provided to the tens of millions of servicemen returning home, that America might face another depression, uh, perhaps even worse than what had unfolded in the 1930s. And there was a fear that I think not only would social unrest uh, perhaps result from that, but that uh, socialism or even communism might take root on American soil. There, there's a, a great quote from Harrison Jones, who was the chairman of Coca-Cola at that time, and he warned that, uh, that gr a great unemployment wave becomes a seedbed for isms. So he was worried about the isms. Uh, that's where other As in fascism, communism, socialism, isms? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and there were, there were other things going on as well. Um, uh, so, again, part of it was fear of that. Part of it was uh, there was there was definitely a, a notion among business leaders at that time that uh, if you didn't put enough wages in people's pockets, uh, that it wouldn't uh, they wouldn't have enough to, to buy with. And uh, if uh, we were going to fuel this this great consumer culture of ours uh, and consumer economy, uh, that we needed to make sure that wages were sufficient to, to do that. And it's interesting. I mean, you now hear folks like Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, warn that with wages stagnant for so long that we may be in this period of secular stagnation. There just isn't enough dough to, to keep the economy humming um, uh, that, that people have in their in their pockets. So that was something that, that uh, they wanted to do as well. The, the way that the president of General Electric, Charlie Wilson, put it at that time, he said, how are they going to buy my refrigerators if I don't give them enough wages to do it with? Right, which is kind of paraphrasing Henry Ford's uh, arguments in the Ford v or Dodge v Ford uh, Michigan Supreme Court case. In, in yes, the 30s. absolutely. Yeah, and for, I mean Ford, you know, for for many faults, definitely got it. He raised his workers' wages overnight from a dollar a day to five dollars a day, and lo and behold, they could buy cars. They could buy Fords. Yep. Um, so, so that was part of what was going on. The, the last factor I, I'd mention, and there are others, but the other thing that was really significant to me that jumped out in my research is. In this period, uh, you know, beginning in the, the kind of mid to late 40s, 
this generation had just come through the Great Depression and World War II together. And there was undoubtedly more of a we culture in America then, kind of we're all in this together, Mm -hmm. much more than an I culture. And uh, I think that also had a lot to do with the way that corporations saw workers and uh, wanted to treat workers. Um, There was definitely uh, a a we ethic, more than an I ethic, and that was uh, reflected in corporate culture. Corporate culture reflected these larger societal norms. The, the, uh, it seems to me that the most consequential change was in the 80s, the changes in compensation rules for senior executives that prior to basically the Reagan administration, um, uh, CEOs saw their roles as being responsive to a, a variety of constituencies. You and I talked about this last night on television. Um, mm-hmm. uh, to the company itself, the institution, most of them had worked their way up in the company. Uh, the average in 1980, the average time a CEO had been in a company was over 30 years. Uh, they felt an obligation to their employees. They felt an obligation to the communities in which their their factories were operating. They felt an obligation to their uh, to their customers to produce a good product for them, and Imagine finally that. an obligation to their stockholders. And and by changing their compensation rules so that they could be paid with stock options, all that went out the window, and everything just became increase the value of the stock to the point that over the last the last couple of years, we've seen like the banks, for example, I just saw this report in the Financial Times last week that the uh, big banks in the United States in the last the previous calendar year, um, uh, nearly 100 percent of their earnings went into share buybacks and dividends rather than into loaning money to people, which is what banks are supposed to be doing. And so therefore, they've just become, you know, extractive machines in our economy. And it's not unique to banks. You want to riff on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very important theme of the book, and uh, and and you and you've hit right on it. But the bu- the book explores through the lens of these four corporate giants, these iconic companies, all kinds of forces that have caused the social compact to erode. So, uh, you know, through their lens, you can see uh, the effects of automation and technology play out, and what that has meant for workers. You can see the effects of globalization and, and competition from low-wage countries. You can see the uh, massive shift from a blue-collar culture where you could, with very little education, less than a high school education in many cases, walk into a factory, and though it was really back-breaking, tough work, you could find a path to the middle class. Those jobs really don't exist anymore. Um, and, and as we've shifted into a, a knowledge age. And so the book talks about all of those big forces. But the gasoline on that fire is exactly what you're saying, is that companies have shifted from a stakeholder mindset, a very explicit stakeholder orientation. We're going to take care of uh, and balance the interests of all these different constituencies, as, as you say, shareholders, yes, but also workers, communities, our customers, even they, they would, in the old days, brag about how much they paid in taxes to fill government coffers. Um, now they, you know, tout how much they avoid taxes, or at least to their shareholders they do, so, and offshore money so that it raises profit. Um, so all of that has changed into this maximizing shareholder value model. And as you note, CEO pay has now been linked through uh, the issuance of stock and stock options. So it is in their interest to try and goose up the share price, often in the short term. And when you do that, employees suddenly don't look like 
assets you invest in, they look like an avoidable expense. Right. And this is insanely destructive. Back in 2010, I, I, I published a book titled uh, Rebooting the American Dream. Uh, Bernie Sanders actually uh, wrote a cover letter and delivered it to all 99 senators. And there was a chapter in there explicitly calling for the repeal of this, uh, you know, changing our tax code so that uh, executives could no longer be compensated with stock and stock options. I haven't been following the movement to do that. It's kind of an obscure thing. Most people get lost just in the conversation of it. But do you know if there's any any movement in that direction? I, I know Bernie continues to talk about it, but I've, I've not heard anybody else talking about this. Not not much. I mean, there are some academics, Lynn Stout at Cornell, who wrote a great book a few years ago called The Shareholder Value Myth, right. um, which really pokes at and explodes this notion, which you still hear from executives and is still taught in business schools, that there is a quote-unquote fiduciary duty Right. for executives to maximize shareholder value, which is just not true. She's a legal scholar, and uh, and the Aspen Institute's done great work on this. It's not true. And, and they and some others have called for the kinds of reforms that you're talking about, Roger Martin at the University of Toronto. But, but again, I, I don't know of much, if any, action actually in Congress, and it's hard to imagine with its current makeup that, uh, you know, how, how we'd even begin to move in, in that direction. Yeah. It's remarkable. We have we have lost so much. We have such a ways to go just to get our country back functioning. Rick Wartzman, the new book, it's a brilliant new book, The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America, uh, Drucker.Institute. You can tweet Rick at R Wartzman, W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N. Rick, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great talking with you. And thanks for writing a brilliant book. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.